Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with Bill Arnold. I'm the Bill Arnold part of that short sentence. I am so glad to spend time with you today, and I'm looking forward to what I have in store for you as I've been planning it for days, and now we're here. And I've got uh, Rob Bluey, my uh, Washington, D.C. correspondent, who I just think is about the smartest guy out there, and he is from the... uh, He's from Washington, D.C., and he's going to tell us what's going on. He's with us right now. Rob, welcome. It's good to be back. Thanks for having me again, Bill. Well, Rob, I think everything today is Amy Coney Barrett. Well, uh, the spotlight is certainly on uh, Judge Barrett. Uh, she is uh, facing questions from the Senate Judiciary Committee after her hearing began yesterday with opening statements. And today she uh, she was on the hot seat, uh, getting peppered from uh, the Senate Democrats on a range of issues. They were trying to put her on the spot, of course, and uh, and do everything they can to maybe try to persuade uh, at least one of the Republican colleagues on the committee to vote against her. It doesn't seem that that's working, though. It seems that Judge Barrett uh, is uh, is performing really well. Uh, she's coming across as, as, as likable, uh, very intelligent, uh, somebody who's not going to forecast her, her opinions. Uh, she faced some tough questions about the Affordable Care Act and uh, was very clear that she's not on any mission to, uh, to, to rule the Affordable Care Act unconstitutional. She's going to apply the law as, uh, as, as she's sworn to do. And so uh, it's looking pretty well for, for Judge Barrett at this point, Bill. It sure does. And some uh, women who have clerked or studied with her have got uh, pretty glowing reviews of her. That's all available on DailySignal.com if you want to go check out that article. But, Rob, maybe you'd give us a preview. You know, Bill, what we wanted to do with this was was really um, try to help our, our, our audience and those who have only heard about uh, Judge Barrett uh, third hand through media accounts and, and other places, uh, maybe even some advertisements, uh, given uh, how much is at stake, uh, to talk to people who know her personally. And those uh, people who know her work best are, are the former uh, law clerks and students who, uh, who have uh, had the experience to, to get to know her personally. And it is just a powerful video. Uh, one of the, the individuals that's featured in the, the video is blind and talks about the struggles that she had um, when, uh, when not only was, uh, was in school and, uh, and some of the hurdles that she had to overcome given her disability, but also how Judge Barrett uh, really stepped in to help. And, uh, and it's just remarkable to hear uh, you know, the, the personal uh, attention that Judge Barrett paid to this issue and, and how she took this on and, uh, and said that she was going to advocate on behalf of the student. And I think that that's, uh, that just shows a side of her that you wouldn't necessarily get from what you see uh, playing out in, in the, the committee room uh, today. And that's, that's fine. Mm-hmm. I understand that they're, they're, everybody has an agenda and they're trying to, to advance it. But, uh, but yeah, thanks for bringing up that video. You know, one of the things that we really strive to do at the Daily Signal is, is to tell those stories that go uncovered. And we've, we have, you know, really, I think, um, 
uh, done a, a great job with this this particular video because it, it captures an issue that you just don't see covered by other uh, news outlets. And that's in part because they're not interested in covering that story, Bill, but it's also because I think they're biased and have their own agenda. And uh, and frankly, uh, that is on display at, in more cases than just Judge Barrett's. I mean, you almost see it play out every day in terms of the bias that's playing out in our news media. That's true. Rob, because all eyes are on Amy Coney Barrett right now, would you mind, this is kind of a big ask, but would you mind kind of walking us through day one of the confirmation trial? Yeah, well, and, and we can even cover, a, you know, a little bit of, uh, of what's proceeded since then. So um, yesterday, the, the, on, a, on a federal holiday of, of all times, but let's face it, time is short here to get this done before Election Day. Uh, we had the opening of the Senate Judiciary Committee hearing, and that's typically a time when when both senators can make their opening statements and and kind of forecast uh, what what their expectations are. But it also gave Judge Barrett an opportunity to talk about her view of of a judge's role and uh, and what she how she would serve as a uh, a Supreme Court justice. And it was a relatively short statement, about twelve minutes. Uh, she talked about how she looked up to uh, Justices Sandra Day O'Connor and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, being the, the first and second women uh, to serve on the court. She was nine years old when Sandra Day O'Connor was confirmed, uh, 21 years old when Ruth Bader Ginsburg was confirmed. So it, both of them had a, a significant influence in terms of uh, her life. And I think hearing that personal story and how she connected it to uh, to, uh, to you know, women that, that Americans admire and respect uh, was, was, really, um, was really touching. And then she also talked about another uh, 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 late Supreme Court justice, uh, that would be Antonin Scalia. Uh, she clerked for Justice Scalia on the court, and so uh, she is somebody um, who who's looked up to him and uh, and has certainly admired the way that he uh, respected and uh, and looked at the law. Um, so that was uh, that was a big focus. But um, moving aside from from Judge Barrett, uh, you can you know there were plenty of of charges of hypocrisy uh, on the part of the Democrats saying that uh, Republicans didn't give President Obama's. A nominee for the Supreme Court, an opportunity to have a hearing in an election year. This uh, this judge shouldn't have a hearing. Uh, you know, there was uh, debates over over COVID. Some people didn't like the fact that Senator Mike Lee, who had tested positive, showed up at the hearings in person. Um, you know, so there were all sorts of theatrics, Bill, and uh, it's uh, it's what we've come uh, known to expect with these Supreme Court confirmation hearings. Uh, perhaps not as uh, as lively because you don't have all of those protesters in the room uh, that you had for for Brett Kavanaugh, but nonetheless, uh, certainly a moment uh, in history when it comes to to the Senate. Because let's face it, there haven't been a whole lot of these; just over a hundred uh, nominees, uh, in mm-hmm. the time that our country's existed. So, so she's, the, she's the latest and she would be the fifth woman to serve on the court if confirmed. Mm-hmm. Rob, now I know these hearings seem, uh, to be a chance to, to have the senators say what's at stake because Amy is not really in a position to answer, answer specifically how she would rule on things. That's right. Uh, th- there's something that has become known as the Ginsburg Rule. Mm-hmm. And the Ginsburg Rule is something that's named after Ruth Bader Ginsburg because she famously, uh, at a time when Democrats um, uh, were uh, were in a position, and Joe Biden, a former committee chairman, uh, certainly uh, s- served for a long time in the U.S. Senate, uh, were questioning her on these things and, and commending her bill uh, for not answering questions about how she would rule on certain cases. And 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 ju- Judge uh, 
then Ruth Bader Ginsburg, before she became a justice, you know, famously replied that it would be inappropriate for her to do so, to, to have a hypothetical case where she gave an answer to. And ever since then, Justice Sonia Sotomayor and Justice Elena Kagan and uh, Justice Neil Gorsuch have all given similar answers uh, to questions about Roe v. Wade and other cases where, where a senator would ask a hypothetical question. So typically, you're right. What happens is the senator then gives gives his or her opinion on how they think a, a decision should be um, should be ruled. But uh, but in this case, uh, uh, Judge Barrett has has uh, stood by that tradition. That was a big focus of what you saw happen uh, here on day two of the hearing when uh, when they, she was facing those questions. Mm-hmm. Their job is to interpret the law. What do you what did you think about all of the uh, cases uh, related to uh, the Affordable Care Act where people are in jeopardy? Of course, those were difficult things to hear about and you feel terribly sorry for people. Uh, do you, what did you think about that process of putting up all these pictures of all these uh, people that would be really compromised if the Affordable Care Act went away. And they're, I, I, and they're not I saying that she's going to vote against it. Right. And she was asked specifically about that. And, and just as we talked about, she wasn't going to forecast uh, what her decision would be even before hearing the case on it. Now, there is a case before the court uh, where the future of the Affordable Care Act, uh, you know, is, is in question. Uh, and and look, this is not the first time that the court has has tackled this question. Your your listeners will remember that it was uh, it was during the the 2012 presidential election campaign that the Affordable Care Act decision was handed down, and famously, John Roberts sided with the Obama administration in that case. And so you never know how these justices are ultimately going to rule. Everybody figured that, you know, uh, with uh, with, you know, the the justices you had on the court at the time, that there would be no question that they would overturn it. Um, And and so I think this is as much about politics and trying to motivate uh, either the 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 progressive base or the conservative base, depending on which side you're on. And and in this case, the Democrats on the committee were using it as an opportunity to really, you know, impose, uh, try to instill some fear in the American people about what could happen with the Affordable Care Act. But um, but it's it's really difficult to say. Uh, and, and I think that the Judge Barrett handled it, uh, you know, precisely well. Uh, in in the way that she answered those questions, and so we'll, we'll just have to wait and see. Uh, you know, we can't get ahead of ourselves on these types of things, and and in some cases, Bill, where you and I, we, we've had a lot of discussions on this show over the years about Supreme Court decisions, and there have been you know some cases uh, that that you have even some of the most liberal members of the court uh, side with the conservatives, or you have a conservative member of the court, as Neil Gorsuch did just this year, uh, you know, side with. Um, with the liberal bloc on some social issues. So it's really difficult to say how she would ultimately come down on it because, you know, she needs to determine the facts of the case and interpret uh, how, how it applies to the Constitution. Mm-hmm. Excellent point, Rob. Senator Ben Sass had kind of an interesting little lesson in uh, the dip, talking about the differences between civics and politics. Did you consider that to be effective? Uh, yes, I, I mean, I think that Senator Sass is somebody who is, uh, is very much focused on... Uh, not only uh, history and tradition, uh, but also the importance of civics and the, and the role that civics play in, uh, in, in, our, in our country. And uh, what he was trying to, to explain is that Congress, uh, being the legislative branch, is that responsible for writing the law. 
Uh, the executive branch is responsible for enforcing the law. And as you, we just talked about, the courts are uh, in charge of it, applying or, or interpreting the laws uh, based on the Constitution. And so uh, what we've seen happen uh, is this idea that the Supreme Court should you know, have the final say uh, and, and, and in some cases legislate from the bench. And by what we mean by that is inventing things that don't necessarily appear in the Constitution. And so finding creative ways uh, to, to make uh, these laws either legal or illegal uh, you know, sometimes stretch the boundaries of what the Supreme Court should be uh, able to do. And so uh, Civics, uh, as as Senator Sass said, is uh, is is really important, uh, and and making sure that we have a lesson in civics is something that I think uh, even even those of us who work uh, in this every day is uh, is critically important. So we don't kind of forget those those foundational things that uh, that our founders gave us. All right, Rob. Let me take a little break. Rob Bluey is my guest, executive editor of the Daily Signal. Head over to DailySignal.com. You're going to like it over there. We'll be right back with Rob in just a minute. There's the theme song for Rob Bluey, executive editor of The Daily Signal. We are back with Rob. And Rob, I'm looking at a nice interview that Tommy Binion did on thedailysignal.com. We had a chance after day one to talk to Marsha Blackburn and uh, Joni Ernst. Do you have a highlight or two from that? Yes. So uh, this is a new podcast that we've launched, just a special series throughout the confirmation fight here. Uh, So every day as the as the hearings draw to a close, uh, we're going to talk to these two senators and they're going to give us their inside perspective. uh, Hence the name of it as perspectives on what happened uh, at the at the hearings. It's significant because uh, Senator Ernst and Senator Blackburn are the first uh, Republican women to serve on the Judiciary Committee. And so they are also the first uh, re- Republican uh, women to question a, a, th- this, this particular uh, nominee or a nominee. You might remember that this, this was an issue when Brett Kavanaugh was, uh, was a nominee because there were no uh, women on the Republican side and the Democrats tried to score political points uh, based on the, the accusations that he was facing at the time. And so, uh, you know, it was uh, it was really an honor to to bring together these these two to give us their their inside scoop about uh, what their expectations were, and we're we're actually getting ready to uh, to do the second episode uh, here shortly as uh, as the day concludes. So, uh, you know, one of the things that we enjoy doing is is having these relationships where we can bring uh, your listeners and and Daily Signal uh, the Daily Signal audience kind of a behind the scenes look as to, to what goes on and the minds of these these powerful leaders in Washington, and in this case, uh, these two uh, these two female senators, and uh, and what it's like to sit in the hearing room and uh, and hear directly. So, uh, lots more to come on that, uh, and uh, it's a short run series, Bill. So okay. don't miss out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> at so, least we expect it to be. We don't. We you know that's another thing. You know we are we are really moving at rapid speed. You and I also always bemoan the fact that it takes Congress so long to get anything done. And uh, in this case, <laughs> they're going to try to have this thing wrapped up, um, you know, before the month is out. So, uh, wow. so you know, this this confirmation process is going to happen very quickly. Mm-hmm. Rob, would you give us a refresher course on the Twenty Fifth Amendment? Yes. <laughs> well, the Twenty Fifth Amendment is is in the news uh, as a result of uh, an effort on the part of of Nancy Pelosi. 
Uh, and, and what Speaker Pelosi uh, is, is trying to do is, is to revive this, uh, this issue. Uh, the, the 25th Amendment, let's just go back, was, was ratified not all that long ago, uh, in, in February of 1967. And it, it addresses presidential, presidential succession. And it came about after the assassination of John F. Kennedy uh, because it, there were some shortcomings in terms of what uh, what we felt or what our country felt at the time was uh, was you know how you would transfer the authority to a vice president, and uh, and so for instance uh, this has been used. Uh, president Reagan used it. And, and George W. Bush used the 25th Amendment uh, before they underwent some medical procedures where they transferred the power to the vice president. Um, you know, what, well, they went uh, underwent uh, general anesthesia. Those things that, like you and I, probably you know, <laughs> go go about our normal lives. But when it involves the president of the United States, and let's face it, we just had a situation recently with uh, with President Trump being in the hospital, where you know this this transfer of authority is uh, is something that, um, that you know we need to take a look at. So Pelosi wants to create a 16 member commission, as if we. <laughs> Need more commissions in Washington, and uh, and he would be you know appointed by Republicans and Democrats uh, that would monitor the president's fitness for office and uh, and contemplate whether or not they need to invoke the the twenty fifth amendment. Now, uh, you know, on the one hand, she's saying that this isn't about Trump, but the fact that she's doing this at this particular time seems to make it very much about Trump. Uh, you know, in the wake of his COVID nineteen diagnosis. And so, you know, that's what it's all about. And I think it's really, again, uh, just a political stunt. I don't expect this to go anywhere, uh, this commission idea. Um, but certainly she got a fair amount of news coverage for us. And it gave us an opportunity, Bill, just as we were talking about civics, to explain a little bit about history and, and the mm -hmm. amendment process. <laughs> mm -hmm. I was wondering if it was more what would happen if uh, Joe Biden gets elected and they want to move him out and um, move the vice president into place. Look, there's a lot of speculation about this, and uh, and I think in in part because uh, because Biden himself has had some uh, some slip ups, uh, you know, until when he's referred to the Harris Biden administration and things things of that nature that appear you know a little to be a little bit backward from the way you normally say it, but. Uh, but you know, certainly nothing nothing said uh, on Pelosi's part about that. Um, but uh, that's why I think she was saying that this would be applicable to any president. And as we know, uh, we have two uh, two people uh, one uh, seventy four, one seventy eight. Uh, you know who um, who are are both you know running for office here. And uh, and at that age, there's a certain vulnerabilities uh, that um, you know that. People just have to take into account, including COVID nineteen. I mean, uh, now the the survival rate is very high for COVID nineteen, even for those uh, you know who are in that that seventy to eighty range. Uh, but obviously, Bill, uh, they are they are in a um, it protect especially if they have uh, other pre existing health conditions. They're in a category that makes them a little bit more susceptible and vulnerable, which is why I'm so grateful to see President Trump um, with so much energy and enthusiasm back out on the campaign trail uh, and. Uh, you know, it's it's really good. It, regardless of his politics, it's just really good to see somebody who's been able to to beat uh, beat COVID nineteen and and be an example for others who are fighting it. Mm -hmm. All right, I feel sorry for New York uh, for a lot of reasons, but one of the things that I've seen come up is that uh, Andrew Cuomo and uh, Bill De Blasio are blaming Jews for the jump in COVID nineteen cases. That, that's right. It's not the first time this has happened. I know. And uh, and, and again, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, New York City. Um, you know, uh, is is the home to 
uh, to a lot of Jewish families. And, uh, and there are some, uh, some they obviously want to practice their religious faith and, and, and come together. Uh, as the weather is getting colder, it's becoming increasingly difficult to hold some of these religious services outdoors. Uh, and, and the same is true, I'm sure, in Minnesota as it is in Virginia. Uh, it's, uh, you know, on, on a Sunday morning at eight o'clock, it's, uh, you know, in the 40s. <laughs> it's only going to get colder from here on out, at least for the next few months. And so, you know, when, uh, when you have a situation where uh, the governor and the mayor are trying to, to limit, uh, you know, those, those prayer gatherings, uh, particularly happening at synagogues, I think that, uh, you know, it, it is troubling. And then when they, you know, suggest that the jump in COVID-19 cases is a result of, of the Jewish people praying together, um, you know that is 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 just unacceptable, and uh, and and yet no at no time are they denouncing all of the protesters. They they get together and uh, and congregate in in sometimes closer quarters. So I think that that's why people see this and they say, what hypocrisy! You can't have people who are are practicing social distancing and probably wearing masks uh, get together for a religious service, but you can let them do other things. You can let the, you know, leave the restaurants open, um, leave the liquor stores open. So it seems like it's an attack on religion is what it does seem like, Bill. Well, uh, Rob, was there um, a message from uh, WHO about that lockdowns don't work and they're not a good idea? Did you see that <laughs> news item? Yeah, you know, uh, and, and look, it's something that, you know, I don't have to tell your listeners because we've been talking about this since March. Right. Um, you know, the National Coronavirus Recovery Commission, which we, we set up at the Heritage Foundation, uh, was talking about the importance of, of having sensible decisions and having statewide lockdowns or national lockdowns, as, as some people have talked about, are just unwise. Now, there could be times when there are hot spots and you want to move swiftly to take action. But, uh, but Bill, yeah, I think that it's, it's troubling to have uh, these blatant policies that, uh, that some, some states and some cities have, have imposed. Uh, I will tell you, um, I had the, the good fortune to spend uh, Columbus Day weekend with uh, with my parents and brother in upstate New York and our families. Nice. Uh, you know, we're, we're together for a few days, and uh, and and what a difference though it, between uh, between a, a place like that and Washington D.C., where I feel like things are on overdrive. And so I just I think that we just need to have some common sense here, Bill. Uh, we need to protect each other. We need to do the right thing if we're not feeling well and stay home. Uh, but yeah, let's not shut our country down again. Mm-hmm. Are the pollsters doing a good job? Do you think? I feel that there's some accuracy there, or are those not I, to be yeah, trusted? It, it, it's all over the place, you know, <laughs> Bill. I I saw uh, I saw a map uh, yesterday where w- one person was saying you know Trump was going to have a, a landslide victory and you know capture more states than he did in 2016, and then you know the the prevailing wisdom in the in the legacy media is all that Biden's going to win, and you know the of course uh, all of the uh, <laughs> the polls seem to suggest he has anywhere between a, you know, ten to fifteen point lead nationally. I just, I, I just don't know what to believe anymore, Bill. Mm-hmm. I mean, everybody yeah. is just all over the map. Right. Well, we'll know in three weeks or so, right? We hopefully. will. Yeah. We, we, and hopefully, we'll know on election day, so it doesn't drag on right. too long right. afterward. Well, I'm glad you had some time with your family, Rob. That makes me happy, and I hope you yes, and your family was, are well. It was really wonderful, Bill. It's good to talk to you again today. Yep. I'll see you next week. Thanks, Rob. Thank you. Rob Blue has been my guest. Of course, he is the executive editor of The Daily Signal. I always encourage you to go to dailysignal.com to check it out. We'll take a short break and we'll be right back.
All right, we are back. So nice to have Rob Bluey on the show, as he always joins us on Tuesday. And now I'd like to uh, introduce Gary Schneider to the program. He's with the Timothy Initiative. And you're asking, hmm, what does the Timothy Initiative do? Well, let me tell you, Jesus commanded us to make um, make uh, disciples of all nations. And they're committed to getting the gospel to every place and people group. That takes uh, some initiative. And uh, Gary is with us now. Gary, welcome. Thank you. Good to be with you. Let's get started off on some serious business. You've got to be extremely happy how the Packers are doing this year. (laughs) Well, I am from Green Bay. I'm actually uh, living in Southern California right now, but I am a lifelong Packer fan and stockholder for that matter. (laughs) Yeah, you and every other Green Bay resident, right? Well, there's about 200,000 of us worldwide. Right, right, right. And once you, it doesn't, it doesn't matter where you live. If you're a Packers fan, that, that's your team. So it doesn't yeah, matter right. where you're living. But they're having a good we, year. We bleed green and gold. That's I, right. Exactly. Do tell us about uh, the Timothy Initiative. Well, the Timothy Initiative is an international disciple-making and church-planting movement. Um, traditionally, over the last 200 years, missionaries have been predominantly from the United States and uh, from Europe usually white people that would go across an ocean to a distant land, say Africa. I was one of them. Cool. Ten years. I lived in Madagascar. And um, there's been a huge amount of good and great accomplishments uh, have taken place as a result of this traditional model. But within the last uh, 20 to 25 years, the, the paradigm has shifted to where now it's not so much the Westerner going to Africa or Asia or Latin America, but now it's God is raising up indigenous national leaders to uh, evangelize and disciple their own countries. Uh, Their budgets are much smaller than ours from the West. When they get sick or when their children get sick, they don't go home. They're already home. Mm -hmm. And they know the culture. They know the language. And they are generally extremely effective at reaching and discipling their own people. So the Timothy Initiative is on the cutting edge of this new movement of seeing how God is using indigenous national leaders to fulfill the Great Commission, kind of like the parable of the 11th hour worker. Mm -hmm. Well, this is very exciting. Um, So it makes so much sense, and I'm curious to find out uh, what kind of tools and resources they have. And, you know, sometimes when I go on, like, for example, your website, and I see a picture of what appears to be a group of people gathered in some little remote part of Africa, uh, and someone's teaching the gospel to them. That looks pretty exciting. I want to know more. Yeah. And and that that person teaching them the gospel is of the same country, the same color. That's what I mean. This this looks like, yeah, this looks like a perfect fit. Yes, exactly. Well, the ministry is based on 2 Timothy 2.2. If you wonder, where does this, who's Timothy? Who's the Timothy Initiative? Paul's disciple was named Timothy. And in 2 Timothy 2.2, which is Paul writing to his disciple, he says, the things you heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So in that one verse, there are four generations of spiritual discipleship. Paul, that's the first generation. He's talking to Timothy, that's the second. Timothy was Paul's disciple. 
And then the third generation is the faithful men that Paul refers to in that verse. And the fourth generation are referred to as, as others also. So that's exactly what TTI, Timothy Initiative, is based on, is uh, disciples making disciples, churches planting churches, leaders equipping leaders. It's based on 2 Timothy 2.2. And uh, a, a Paul in our ministry is someone who is a, a mentor, is a, uh, a discipler, who recruits Timothys. Timothys are generally bivocational, used to call them lay people, uh, marketplace believers, who come to a training center usually one weekend a month. And over the course of a two-year period of time, they go through a curriculum that has been written by our international leaders, covers every book of the Bible, covers things like spiritual warfare, marriage and family, uh, church history, how to read the Bible, how to teach the Bible. So after that two-year mentoring time, those Timothys are equipped to become house church leaders. Mm-hmm. So during the training, they're leading people to Christ. And after the two years, in order to graduate from this training, they have to start a church. And we call this obedience-based discipleship. That's different than what we have here in America. We take a class, and the best we hope for is that people gain some knowledge. We don't really require much in the way of application. But um, with, uh, with our curriculum, we call it obedience-based discipleship. In other words, you only go on to the next step after you have actually done uh, the first step. If we're talking about uh, witnessing or praying or sharing, you know, sharing our testimony, you don't go on to the next lesson until you have actually successfully accomplished in, in real-life situations uh, the lesson that you're on. And then those Timothys, as they're planting a church— they're winning people to Christ. Their disciples we call Titus. Now, it doesn't necessarily say that Titus was Timothy's disciple, but just put a name to it. Titus was a, a disciple. So in TTI nomenclature, the Tituses are the third generation, and those are the disciples of Timothy. And we want Tituses to become Timothys by going to the training center. And then a certain number of Timothys will actually become Pauls. They'll become the mentors. Uh, over a period of time as well. So it's it's a powerful tool that we have because it's easily reproducible. You don't have to be a seminary-trained uh, leader to be a Paul, a Timothy, or a Titus. Mm-hmm. So when I think of these churches, and the churches are meeting on in homes, on mountaintops, under trees, in riverbeds. So exactly. you're, not, you're not focusing on structures. So this... This methodology, uh, according to the website, is not only sustainable and reproducible, but it's pretty cost-effective. Well, that's it. For $300, we can plant a church. We have been planting churches for the last 13 years. In fact, we just surpassed the 80,000 churches mark. Uh, We're up to over, I think it's 84,000 as of last week. Even during the COVID, we've seen 7,000 churches planted around the world. And that's because for $300, we can plant a church, including training the Timothys, and that would include the Tituses as well. That's the disciple of the Timothy. Because we we don't have sanctuaries like you alluded to. We don't Mm -hmm. build buildings. Uh, We don't send them off to seminary. We believe that the local church, according to the book of Acts, 
is the best training ground for people to do the work of the ministry. It tells us in Ephesians that the role of the, the pastor is to equip people for the work of the ministry. So we do that kind of in-house. Not that seminaries are bad. I'm a graduate of seminary. But because of the nearness of the end of the age, because of the demands of the Great Commission, we're doing this as quickly as possible. And then we don't, um, um, we don't build sanctuaries. We don't send them to seminaries. And we don't pay salaries either, the three S's. We don't pay the, the house church leaders a salary because they're bivocational. They're bakers and candlestick makers and can uh, provide for themselves through that. So because of that, um, we can plant a church for $300. So think, think rabbits, not elephants. Right. That's really, really powerful model that you've got going here uh, with incredible results. You should be on the cover of Time Magazine or something. <laughs> yes. Well, they keep asking. Oh, yeah. I'm glad you're saying no. All right. Uh, yeah. Let me ask you about this. Uh, I'd like you to say more about the obedience step. That's very interesting. I want to hear more about mm-hmm. that. Well, I think it's the key to our whole process. Um, so we have a 10-book curriculum. Uh, it starts with discovering the Bible, communicating the Bible, how to plant a church according to the book of Acts. There's an overview of the Old Testament, New Testament, all of these different uh, books that, like I said, cover the entire uh, uh, Bible over a two-year training. Uh, one of the lessons, for example, is about how to share your faith. So it talks about uh, sharing your own story, you know, what your life was like before Christ and then how you came to know him and then what your life is like now after Christ. So we actually have one of the trainings where we sit down with our Timothys and write out a brief personal testimony. And then for that month between their, their training sessions, they're to go out and to share their own personal testimony with 10 people over the course of the the month leading up to the next uh, training. And they come back, and if they do that, then they go on to the next lesson. If they don't, then they have to repeat that lesson until they do it. And the next lesson in our teaching is how to share God's story. And we talk about um, the bridge where there's this gulf between the sinfulness of man and the holiness of God, and Christ crosses it. We have a very clear, simple way of explaining the gospel or we talk about uh, grace, man, God, Christ, faith, another very simple you know, five-point way to communicate. So we add uh, our story with God's story to make a beautiful, personal gospel presentation, and um, they're then encouraged or required to share that with 10 people. And the same thing with prayer. We talk about praying for an hour a day. Uh, so some people might say, oh, that sounds kind of legalistic. That sounds like, you know, there's a lot of rules. But actually, we have found that by instituting an obedience-based discipleship, the work of God is getting done. And uh, there is a, a rigor and a zeal and a passion for the things of God like uh, like I've never seen. That's really interesting. Um, because I love stories and I love fig- figuring out how people got involved in the ministry they're involved with. I don't know, Gary, if you would share a little bit about your faith story and how, oh, you, how, how you got connected with the Timothy Initiative. Sure. I mentioned before that uh, I was one of those traditional missionaries, which we're thankful for, by the way. I don't mean to 
sound like we're down on them. I mean, uh, we're standing on their shoulders. But when I was 17 years old, uh, one of the very few friends that I had, because I was kind of the high school bully growing up in Green Bay, <laughs> I'm 6'7", 270. Wow. You know, uh, could have played for the Packers myself. Actually had a tryout. Cool. Uh, <laughs> so my only, well, one of my only friends in high school invited me to his church youth group, and I went along because I knew there were a lot of pretty girls at that church. And uh, I ended up at the altar at the end of the uh, evangelistic rally, receiving the gift of eternal life and forgiveness of my sins myself. And uh, shortly after, I went off to uh, engineering school, and uh, I came home from a church service while I was at engineering school. I went to a local church in the area, and I, I was kneeling at my bed. And the, I have to say that I, I say this so sparingly, hesitatingly, but it's absolutely true that the Lord spoke to me. And all I could think of was Second Timothy chapter 4, Second hmm. Timothy chapter like, what in the world is Second Timothy 4? I was a brand-new Christian, knew the Lord for about four months at this point. So I thought, well, you know, I, I just come from church. Maybe this has something to do with the Bible. You know? So I looked in the um, table of contents and found out, hey, there's a Second Timothy. I'm, you know, I'm on the right track here, Lord. And I looked up chapter 4, and it says, uh, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge, preach the word. And, and so I went on to read through verse 5, where it talks about do the work of an evangelist and make full proof of your ministry. And the crazy thing was that uh, I felt like God was calling me into the ministry, which was unheard of in my family. I mean, there's lots of alcoholics and drug addicts, but mm -hmm. no ministers, I can assure you. <laughs> And so uh, I went off to Bible college in Minneapolis, and while I was there, there was a missionary who came and was talking about the lostness of man and the need for laborers and the, the very similar call that I had experienced a few months prior that I just explained. Again, I was feeling like God was clarifying the call to missions. So I became a missionary with my family to the island of Madagascar. Spent 10 years there as a crusade evangelist and a church planter, and I saw firsthand the impact of planting a church. I believe that the best way to evangelize a city is to plant a church. It stays, Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So we would only have a crusade with a church being left behind. So I did that for 10 years, planted uh, 52 churches. And after they bought land and built walls, I would come back with my crusade team and we would put a corrugated tin roof hmm. on the the walls they put up. So I was literally a, a, a preacher and a roofer for 10 years. Yeah. Wow. I, I kind of felt it was a cross between Billy Graham and Indiana Jones. <laughs> That's so interesting, Gary. I feel like I'm, I'm hearing a story of a, a person's life that's has mattered in a very significant way for the kingdom. This is very encouraging to hear. Thank you. Yeah, let me take a little break. Gary Schneider is my guest, and he's with the Timothy Initiative. You can go to ttionline.org, ttionline.org. To learn more about them, we'll be right back.
Evangelism, disciple-making, and church formation. That's what the Timothy Initiative is all about. And my guest, uh, Gary Schneider, is um, regional director. He's been with um, the Timothy Initiative for how many years, Gary? Well, just one year. I'm coming up awesome. on November 1st, one year. That's awesome. And do you think you're done growing? Six, seven? Oh, we're just, we're just getting started. Yeah, <laughs> we're just getting started. You know, there's a multiplication effect that takes place when you when you mentor people the way we do, one person right. mentoring two and then two mentoring four. So we're at the point right now where we are uh, at about 180,000 Pauls, Timothys, wow. and Titus around the world. Yeah. And the last year, we've seen a doubling of our number up to 190,000 because of the way the multiplication curve works. Well, I appreciate um, hearing maybe a little bit of what the American churches are doing today and what the Timothy Initiative, maybe what you guys are learning from each other, what how you can support each other, and uh, maybe you could talk about that a little bit. Absolutely. Well, it's interesting, the uh, curriculum that I mentioned earlier that we use, this two-year curriculum, is being adopted by the American church. And oh, we fantastic. have and dozens of churches in the United States saying to the Timothy Initiative, hey, you're discipling, making disciples, you know, who make disciples, who make disciples, and you're planting churches all over the world. How about helping us do that here in the United States? So these these are not big churches. They're typically 20 to 30 people. As you mentioned, they're meeting in homes, in offices, uh, under a tree, mm-hmm. on a mountaintop. Well, here in the States, uh, the, the, the micro churches, as we call them, are meeting in people's homes. It's different than a life group or a Bible study in that the purpose is obedience-based discipleship. We go out as an evangelism uh, uh, ministry to bring people in and disciple them so they can be raised up to start their own micro church. So we have uh, a couple of hundred churches in the United States that are using our curriculum, that have the training centers that are, are becoming disciple-making movements. And uh, and that's where the real fun is. I mean, that's what I signed up for when I said yes to Jesus to right. go into men. Right. How many uh, unreached people would you say are out there in the world today? Well, there's close to 3 billion people who have yet to have an adequate witness of the gospel. Mm-hmm. 86% of our work is in unreached people group areas. So we focus primarily on reaching Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists, a lot of the, what they call the 1040 window, which is that swatch of, of nations across North Africa and the Middle East. Uh, India actually has the largest uh, number of unreached people in the world. Uh, in fact, about two-thirds of all the unreached people groups are in India with their 1.3 billion people. So our largest work is in India. We have a project to plant a church in every village in India over the next 10 years. Powerful. I love hearing that. Maybe, Gary, you could share a story of how um, a Timothy goes, plants a church, and maybe some of the amazing stories that comes out of it. Oh, absolutely. Um, there, There are so many powerful stories of how people all over the world, you know, men, women, you name it, how they've been equipped 
and have, have gone out to, to do just that. Uh, I could think of a man by the name of Kabir in India who was involved in witchcraft. In fact, he was a uh, sorcerer himself and um, came in contact with a uh, Timothy, one of these uh, uh, people being discipled. And the Timothy witnessed to him, shared his faith, and over the course of about six months, had uh, completely turned his life over to the Lord. He had renounced witchcraft and Satanism and uh, actually became a Timothy himself over a period of time. And then from there, he became a Paul. So we see this man who was entrenched in witchcraft and Satanism, uh, not only become a, a Christ follower, but become a mentor to other people who will then mentor other people as well. So we, we see this happen um, <laughs> on a regular basis. Those stories, um, I never get tired of hearing about them because you think of a person like this gentleman who obviously is uh, very deep into uh, satanic activity and that right. the Holy Spirit breaks into his life and not only changes his heart and transforms him, but turns him into a, dis- a disciple maker for the kingdom. Right. It's just so powerful. Yeah. That's, you know, the beautiful thing is that we're not content just to see somebody get saved. We want to see somebody become a disciple maker and even a trainer of disciple makers as right. well. That's the beauty of TTI's model. I bet there's a lot of people right here in the U.S. of A. that could uh, benefit just from a little refresher course on uh, disciple making and, and training. And are some of your resources available for those who might just want to do some personal improvement? Oh, they certainly are. Uh, TTIonline.org. You can see all of our discipleship resources there. Uh, The truth is about 95% of evangelical Christians in America will never witness to another person their whole life. Wow, that's a staggering number. It is. It really is. What Uh, are we doing? We're we're blowing it. Yeah. What what really is Christianity? Jesus said, (laughs) follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. So if, if we're not fishing... We're not following. If you look at that verse, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Mm-hmm. We're not fishing. We're really not following. We may think we're following because we go to church and maybe throw in some money and raise our hands or something. But if we're not actively living an evangelistic lifestyle and teaching others to do the same, are, are we really a disciple of Jesus? It's a great question. Um, I had a pastor, a former pastor that said, here's a, a good test, a good diagnostic test. Uh, can you say the last thing you learned in Scripture that you felt was brand new, that the Holy Spirit shined a light on it in a new and fresh way, or some revelation you just thought, I've never seen this before. I've read, the, you know, John chapter 5 50 times, yeah. and I saw something for the for the first time I've never seen. Can you share that? And then can you also share that, you know, the time and the person and the place you last shared your faith with someone? And not necessarily that it produced the, the result you hoped for, but did you at least share your faith? And if you can answer yes to those two things, you're probably, you're probably staying um, nice and steady and strong in your faith. Yeah, right. Well, the key, too, is, uh, you know, don't look at the person that you discipled. Look at the person they discipled. So one generation down from your disciple, that will tell you how you did as a disciple maker. And so we we can 
you know, look at our own disciples, that's one thing. But the real key is how did our disciples do in making other disciples? That will tell if I'm doing my job or not. Yeah. Well, Gary, it's been real um, encouraging to hear your story and hear your passion. And it's uh, the Timothy Initiative sounds like it's doing some amazing work. Yes. Can I tell people how they could be involved? Oh, sure. So we have a outreach called the Church Planter Circle. I'd mentioned earlier about $300 will plant the church. So on our website, ttionline.org, you'll see a button there that says join the Church Planter Circle. So for $29 a month over a 12-month period of time, you can actually provide the funding needed to plant one church in one year. And I would certainly invite you to do that. That's very cool. Gary, thank you so much for doing the show and and sharing the vision of the Timothy Initiative. My pleasure. Thank you. Yep. Gary Schneider's been my guest. We're going to take a little break. When we come back, we're going to have a full hour of Ask the Professor. Dr. Mark Muska is already in the green room. I can see him, but he's ignoring me. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.